you ready for the word? We have been in a series entitled, What's the Deal with Church? Going through a bunch of teachings to the New Testament about metaphors that would teach us about the church. And we've gone through the church being lights and candlesticks, which shows that we're elevated and we are meant to be cities on a hill and a light to the world. And we're golden, even though we may have some issues in our churches and things that Jesus is working out, he's still in the midst. We've talked about being the temple of God and kind of seeing ourselves with the same passion and zeal that Jesus sees for his own temple because the Bible calls us his temple and to be passionate about what's going inside and what's coming out and being very intentional about holiness. Amen? Last week, Maria talked about being the body and each part has a significant role that each part means something and matters. So if you're not here, the body is missing parts that are very vital to its wholeness to fulfill its mission. Metaphors are important. They give us images, pictures of what's in the mind of God. When he built this church, when Jesus came to die on the cross, not just to forgive us of our sins, but to build his church, it was something that the earth hadn't seen before. And it was something that these metaphors in the New Testament would begin to help us see how God sees us as his church, but also begin to help us see ourselves. Because we relate to things, these illustrations, these images help us understand. But each image builds on itself. Each image shows different parts that if you just think the church in one image and not the other images, you're gonna miss parts. You can kind of get overzealous in just one thing. And if you don't compare it or keep it with the other thing, we can get out of balance. And so I appreciate this series because it's given you all these different illustrations of who we are as a church. Today, I want to talk to you about two more illustrations. We are the bride of Christ, and we are the army of God. Can you say bride of Christ? The bride of Christ, and we are the army of God. And I'm excited to bring these two illustrations to you because it's going to give you another insight or another lens on how Jesus views us and on our purpose and on our ability, our influence in the earth. So I hope you're taking notes today. And I'm really excited that it kind of fell on this weekend to talk about the Bride of Christ, especially because Tuesday, I get the opportunity to celebrate with Maria our 25th wedding anniversary. Wow. Yeah, can you believe that? I was two years old, she was one when we were married. So, no, I'm just kidding. But we dated in high school and high school sweethearts and Maria, I have to say that I am so thankful for you and I love you more today than the day I said, would you marry me? And I would say it again and I would say it again, I would say it again. I really hope that you've had a wonderful 25 years and I'm really excited to make the next 50 years even better than the last 25. I love you so much. All right, so are you ready to get into this about the bride of Christ? So this illustration of the bride in the Old Testament it's interesting because I want to compare and contrast a little bit of the Old Testament versus the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the images of God viewing his nation of Israel and his people as his bride, it wasn't a very positive illustration. If you go through the Old Testament, typically when God was crying out for relationship with his people Israel, they were unfaithful. And so most of the illustrations in the Old Testament talk about an unfaithful bride. 
And I want to compare that to the New Testament in just a minute, but I have some scriptures in your notes you can look at later, Jeremiah 3.1 and 8, Ezekiel 16.31 through 34. I try to provide my notes for you in the Calvary Orlando app. If you've not looked at that, the notes should be in there. But in that illustration, it kind of talks about how the unfaithful bride keeps looking for other husbands. That's not who we are in the New Testament. Thank you, Jesus. But you know what? We do have a tendency, even in the New Testament, even today, we are meant to be covenanted and united in one with our husband, the Lord. But yet, if you're not careful, the devil will try to tempt you or you'll try to continue to look for other husbands, but you have one, his name is Jesus, and he's all you need. Somebody say amen to that. But you need to realize the human nature has this thing in it, or if you're not careful, where it says, well, I like this husband, but you know, let's look into this and let's look into that, and we say no to those things. The second thing the Old Testament bride would do would be lowering herself to live beneath who she was. That Old Testament unfaithful Israel, Israel is the children of God. Israel is God's covenant people. God continually said that he committed himself, covenanted itself to her like a husband to a bride. But she would go and play the harlot, the Bible said. Go selling herself and, and giving herself away to other nations, going to Egypt or going to other lands to seek help when she already had a husband, she already had a covering, she already had a defender. She has the one she needs, but she would lower herself and sell herself and lower her standards, lower who she was, and act like someone she wasn't. And sometimes we as Christians or as the church today can be tempted to live lower than we are. You are one with the Lord. You are seated with him in heavenly places. You are the salt, you are the light, amen. You are joint heirs with Christ and yet we can live beneath that and we can see ourselves. When you see yourself lower than who you are, you begin to act and respond in a lower manner. You also begin to tolerate other people treating you in that manner because of the way you see yourself. Do you understand that, church? And so you begin to accept behavior from other people towards you because of your own identity and lower, lowering of your own personal identity. She was trying to find more. This was another thing in the Old Testament. Quite often she would try to find more than what she already had because she didn't realize what she already had. This is this Old Testament picture where she would go after other lovers, she would go after other gods, basically is the way it was illustrated in the Old Testament, trying to get more. More of what? The God of the universe has already covenanted himself to you. He has said, I'll defend you. He has said, I'll provide for you. He said, God says, I see you, I love you. The God above all gods. And yet she would go and look for these false gods to tell her that they love her. But those gods aren't even real gods. They're made out of wood and stone. They're overlaid with gold maybe, but they are not God. They cannot speak, they cannot hear. And yet she was looking for more than she already had from places that couldn't give her anything. And we can be tempted to do that, to look outside of the kingdom of God and to not realize what God has given us in relationship with him and access to his, himself and his throne of grace, access to the body of Christ, access to his power, his anointing, his wisdom, his presence. And we can begin to 
kind of disdain it, kind of treat it or minimize it in an ungrateful manner and think, well, maybe, maybe if I go over here outside the kingdom of God, I'll find more. I'm here to tell you there's nothing more outside your marriage to Jesus, outside of the family of God than you have right now. He's given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's not withholding anything from you. The point is, is do we see what we have? Amen. You are lacking nothing. Amen. You are lacking nothing. So don't let your heart be wandering. Don't let your heart go astray. The devil will tell you there's more out here. He did that with Adam and Eve. Come on, church. He tempted Eve about what they didn't have rather than realizing what they had. And they, God had already given them everything they needed. God had given them more than enough. And really what they had, didn't have was sin and pain and death. And that's what's out there. And that's why when we get tempted to leave our relationship or leave our husband and leave that covenant relationship and go looking for other lovers or other things to satisfy us, you're going to be sorely disappointed. It may be attractional at first to tempt you away by your passions, but you will be disappointed in the husband that you're going after because he can do nothing or that other God cannot do what your God, the Lord Jesus Christ can do for you. Somebody celebrate Jesus in that, amen. But God illustrates this other idea, that's the Old Testament, but in the Old Testament as well, this idea of marriage and husband going after his bride. As much as we talk there about the unfaithfulness of the bride, the Old Testament talks about the faithfulness of God as the husband. Going after his bride. And this is, that's why this metaphor, this image is so important because you understand in it the idea of covenant, you understand the idea of the husband pursuing the woman he loves to win her heart. So many times we talk about us pursuing God, but you realize we pursue him, we love him because he first loved us. And let's look a minute, for a minute here about how God passionately fell in love with us though we weren't worthy, though we weren't qualified, and he saw us, chose us, paid the price to win us, and is married and covenanted himself to us. That's awesome, awesome. God illustrates in the Old Testament his faithfulness to us and acknowledges even that we oftentimes have weaknesses in faithfulness towards him. If you read the book of Hosea, say Hosea. You might not have ever read it before, but I encourage you to look at it. It was interesting because here's a prophet that God tells him, marry a prostitute. And he says, your marriage is gonna be an illustration of my people and myself, where you chose her in her weakness, in her sin, in that lifestyle that she's in, and you're trying to bring her up and out of it into real love, into a real covenant and promise and faithfulness and family and home with a real lover someone who genuinely loves her and isn't trying to just get something from her. You understand the devil doesn't love you, the world doesn't love you, they just wanna get stuff from you. But your God, he loves you unconditionally and he loves you with an agape love, one directional, and he's proven it by coming and dying and paying all the prices. And so you see this image in Hosea of this unfaithful bride, but you really see the faithfulness of God. And that though she kept stumbling and kept going after these false gods or these, these other lovers, God kept going after her. God keeps going after us. God keeps going after us. That's powerful. You know, when, if you put yourself in that 
bride situation there for Hosea, I couldn't imagine how dirty you might feel, how unworthy you might feel, how embarrassed you may feel. And so some of that is also what's gonna keep you away from your real husband. But yet your real husband, God, keeps coming after you. Keeps coming after you, like kind of trying to help you wipe away that shame, wipe away that sense of that you don't fit or belong. He, he found you in the first place. He knew who you were when he married you and chose you anyway, and that he also takes the responsibility to be our helper to help us grow out of who we were. He doesn't want you to stay unfaithful, but, he's try, but he realizes it and he's helping trying to bring you out of that unfaithfulness, trying to bring you to the only one, one God, one groom that will ever love you. Are you understanding that? Hosea 3.1, the Lord said to Hosea, said to him, go and love your wife again. Remember, he said to Hosea that I'm illustrating his love for Israel, his love for the unfaithfulness of Israel. Go and love your wife again because she left. She kept leaving to go be a prostitute again. Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. Now, you know, legally throughout the Bible, if someone committed adultery, that was a legal reason where they could leave. Do you understand that? Where they could have a divorce. And here God is saying, even though it may be legal, you're portraying my love and I'm still pursuing. That's pretty awesome. Amen. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel even though the people have turned to other gods and loved them. This imagery of marriage, of bride and groom are also to help us put language and understanding of God's love and commitment but also desire and enthusiasm. So I really wanted to kind of help you see the love and commitment and the faithfulness side, but I love the idea that being the bride to the Lord isn't just about love and commitment, but there's also the desire and passion and enthusiasm the groom has for the bride. I want you today somehow to receive the idea that God isn't just committed to you, but God is passionate about you that God is head over heels excited to be your groom. Come on, church. To see that God loves you, God likes you, God wants to be with you. That he thinks about you and he thinks of ways to love you like a husband should. Are you hearing me, church? He's not just checking the box saying, I paid the legal part, I paid the bills, I committed, all right, we're married. But God is also enthusiastic and his love for you, he feels it as much as it's also a choice. We know that love is not just a feeling. Love does create feelings. Love isn't a feeling, but to love something with all your heart will also create passion for it, will also create enthusiasm for it. Are you hearing me? I want you to see that that God isn't just cerebral when it comes to his love for you. He's not just faithful and committed. He actually does feel intense jealousy for you, passion for you. He feels stuff for you. Are you hearing me? Amen. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, that God even rejoices over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. That when God chose you and and pursued you, it wasn't just because he was obligated to, he's excited about you being his bride and him being your groom, being married, committed, forever, one with you. The groom, just let's just think of earthly illustrations and kind of layer it into this, a groom. 
We've had a couple marriages this summer and it's fun to talk to the bride and the groom and kind of hear their heart about getting married. A groom is excited to marry their bride. Let's hope that's the case. Can somebody say amen? Amen. There's an enthusiasm, not just in the bride's part, but in the groom's part. Hopefully in the heart of the groom, there is this sense of, I get to put my name upon you in your life, and you now get to bear my name. I get to become your husband and take care of you. Come on. And get to stand in front and get to be with you all the time. We get to be one together. There is an enthusiasm from the groom to be married to the bride. The groom is also proud of his choice. When you speak to grooms that are about to get married, they're excited to say, this is my fiance. We're about to be married. There is a enthusiasm about you. I want you to hear today that God, that Jesus Christ is enthusiastic about you, not just about the global church, but you, my friend. And you say, well, but I've come out of so much garbage. My life has been so difficult. I was such a rebel against God. I've done so many difficult things. I'm not perfect. I want you to hear with all your heart that Jesus Christ is excited about you. He's proud of being married to you. Are you hearing me? He is proud of his choice. Yes. Proud of his choice. The groom takes responsibilities to be your husband. And our Lord and Savior takes responsibilities. He knows his responsibilities in being our husband, our covering, amen, our provider, our protector, all these things. He knows his part, and he's going to lead in that, amen. The groom desires love in return. That's important. In every marriage, a groom is desiring a response. God loves you with all he has. He's completely committed to you, but he desires your love in return. I want to make sure that I am responding to him and making him aware of how much I love him in return. I love the Lord Jesus. It's not just about what he's done for me. I'm grateful for beautiful songs. I'm grateful for the thought of how much God loves us, but it's important. Do we take time to address how are we responding and showing love back to Jesus? Maybe when you were first saved, you got involved in a lot of things. Maybe you used to sing those songs. Maybe you used to give special offerings. Maybe you used to do stuff somehow in the kingdom of God. Just say, God, these are just a way for me to show you I love you. But sometimes we can stay in church so long that we just sit and we do nothing and we just attend. That is not the type of marriage the Lord is looking for. Not just two people existing in a home, right? but there's some sort of back and forth, some sort of exchange of love and of, of passion and enthusiasm and celebrating one another and, and showing love back and forth. Yes. This is not just a one-sided thing. Are you excited about that? So take an evaluation of your own life. How have I been expressing my own love and appreciation to the Lord? As he's been loving me, loving me, I can talk about him loving me all day, but can I give at least a few ideas of how I'm trying? It may, it may be just a human attempt, but at least it's, and he appreciates it all, by the way, but at least it's us in some way, shape, or form saying, God, this is me saying how grateful I am, how much I love you in response. I love you with all of my heart, all of my mind, all of my soul, all of my strength. 
Amen. The groom desires faithfulness in return as well. I love that God doesn't want to share us with other gods, which don't have to look like gold and wood and stone. They could look like careers. They could look like goals. They could look like fame. They could just look like ourselves, because we worship ourselves so much in this world. But God desires faithfulness to him. He will not share you with anything. He's jealous for you. And I can feel that because I don't want to share Maria with anyone else. And I have no prob problems letting you know or her know. I do not share her with anyone. Amen. Amen. And that's, but you see, God gave us this idea of marriage, this idea of covenant, not just so that we can make children and grow the earth, but also so that he would have this idea of covenant and relationship to point to throughout history to talk about how he views us. Are you hearing that? Which is also why God is not a live-in partner. God makes covenant and becomes our husband. Come on. He doesn't keep one foot in singleness and one foot in marriage. He's all in. And he wants your children to be raised in that type of covenant and commitment because it reflects his commitment. And God desires and seeks faithfulness in return. And he deserves it, but that's what he wants. 100% of you. The groom also desires to be desired. And I don't have to wait for the men to say amen. But there is something when your wife looks at you and says, you still got it. Come on now. And you may not got it, but she's making you feel like you got it. It may be in her eyes and the way she bats them at you. It may be in a little way she tilts her head. It may be in something she says. But there's something that a husband still wants to know that she still desires me. She's not just committed to me. She still desires me. And I believe the Lord also appreciates not just faithfulness, but an enthusiasm, a love, and a desire for him. Lord, you are my desire. You're not just my, you know, agreed upon covenant partner. You're still, I still desire you, oh God. I still seek after you, oh God. I still pursue you too, God. Isn't that good? Amen. Now, the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament picture of the bride is the Old Testament bride, as I said, was often an unfaithful bride. But here's what I love in the New Testament. Because of the work of Jesus, and then we have the help of the helper, the Holy Spirit, in the New Testament, God doesn't focus on the unfaithfulness of the bride. In the New Testament, he speaks of her being spotless. And what he's done to prepare her and make her perfect and without blame and without blemish. Isn't that awesome? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 through 2. I hope you will put up with a little more my foolishness, Paul says. Please bear with me. For I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. So Paul is talking about that imagery, like we said. That he's a, but he's promised a pure bride, because that's who you are. A pure bride to one husband, Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, 25 to 27. Husbands... This means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her, for her, his wife, to make her holy, 
clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself, a glorious church without a spot and without a wrinkle. Come on, there's, there's that. I never get wrinkles as, I am my, as I'm the Lord's bride, praise God. Or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Don't you love the language of the New Testament and how God sees you because he sees you through the blood of Jesus and he sees what he can do to help cure you even of your backslidings, the Bible says. Isn't that awesome? I love it. But you're still his bride. But listen to how he speaks about us and his expectation, his hope over us in the New Testament. The bride belongs to Christ. So I'm going to go just a little sidetrack for a second. Because I, I love this language of the bride and being that the bride belongs to Christ. And I don't know if I have any pastors in the room or maybe ministers watching online or anyone that somehow interacts with the church, the Lord's wife, the Lord's bride. I think there's a good illustration in a little sidetrack. Can I take you on a bunny trail for a minute? Is that okay? All right. Here's a sidetrack to pastors and ministers. Like John the Baptist in the New Testament, we are the friends of the bridegroom. In one way, yes, we are all part of that church. We're part of the bride. But we function like John the Baptist did when it came to Jesus. And our ministry is about being a friend of the groom. John 3, 29. John the Baptist said this. I don't know if it's John the Baptist said this, but it, this is what it said. I think it's right before John. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear those vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. Yeah, that was John the Baptist referring to Jesus. Isn't that awesome? John the Baptist was talking about his position, though he himself would be in covenant with the Lord. We get that. He understood as a minister that he's not the groom. He's a friend of the groom, and we celebrate the bride's love for the groom. So let me say it a couple ways to help us as ministers kind of keep ourselves accountable. We serve the bridegroom. We serve the groom. Number two, we assist in the matchmaking process. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. I help you find the groom. Isn't that wonderful? The groom knows where you are, but I help you see the groom. We rejoice when the match goes through. So here's some warnings to the friends of the groom. Never try to steal the affection of the bride from her husband. Pastors, leaders, ministers, Never try to steal the affection of the bride to her husband. Pastors should not seek the bride's focus. Amen. Amen. It's okay to say amen. Here's another one. Never touch or violate the bride. You don't touch the Lord's church. Doesn't belong to you, pastor. Doesn't belong to you, minister. Belongs to the groom. You don't touch. You don't violate. Her money belongs to Jesus. Come on now. Her dowry, all that she brings with her, belongs to the groom. Her affection belongs to the groom. Her loyalty belongs to the groom, not to the pastor, not to the minister. Too many ministers try to get a following to themselves, and we've got it all wrong. We are the bride, we're the friend of the groom, and we want them to see Jesus. We want them to follow Jesus. We want their affection to go to Jesus. We want their finances, their attention, their focus to go to Jesus. Their admiration to go to Jesus. Their loyalty to go to Jesus. Amen. 
She bears his name, not our name or the church's name. Not the name on the church, right? Her name is the Lord's. Regarding church leaders, I want you to put this in your pocket, church, just as the Lord may, you know, times and seasons move you from one church to another. Regarding church leadership, before you select a church or you select a minister or a pastor, watch how they treat their spouse before you follow them. Watch the way they honor their own marriage and speak of it because that's the way that they will honor the Lord's marriage. Do you understand that? The imagery of bride and groom is one that evokes very strong and intense feelings. Wars have been fought over love and jealousy. God is desiring not just your religious service, but relationship, your heart, even your emotions. Some people were naturally more intellectual and we just, everything is all in our head. Other people all in their emotions. God wants both. God wants your head and your heart. And God does want you to feel for him as well. I think we would be dishonest if we as husbands would say, it's okay if our wife just mentally agrees we're married but never feels anything for you. You want her, just like she wants you, to not just be committed, she wants you to feel something for her. It's important. God put us together this way and gave us passions and feelings as well. Even our earthly marriages, in that idea of passion or desire, it was, it, I believe it's an example to show us even how God is being drawn towards you, like you're being drawn towards your spouse. There's multiple scriptures in Revelation where God is talking about desire drawing, drawing you towards the person you, that you love and towards that commitment. The book of Song of Solomon. Now, I know sometimes we avoid Song of Solomon because we don't know what to do with it. We're like, oh, that book's kind of like <laughs> colorful. I remember one time I was reading, I think the first time I read it, I was in junior high, and I was like, am I allowed to be reading this book? Like, I'm being encouraged to read this book? Like, I'm 12, you know? Okay. <laughs> but you know, why is that book in there? That entire book is in there not just to tell you the thoughts about a husband towards his bride or a bride towards her husband, but also the emotions of the two. And those desires and enthusiasms, they're showing you that God has an internal drive towards us as well. And we have something inside of us that desires him as well, not just mental assent. And you can even check that out in the book of Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I talked about the golden lampstands a few weeks ago. The first church the Lord addresses is the church of Ephesus. Say Ephesus. Ephesus. Just want to make sure you're still there. In that in particular church, the Lord is saying, I see your works. You're faithful to all the stuff. You're saying no to sin and you're being obedient. But he says, but your heart isn't in it. He says, I have a problem. You've lost your first love. But wait a minute. All of the function is there. All of the action is there. But God is looking beyond just the obedience. He's looking at the heart behind the obedience. Is there still enthusiasm to obey the Lord? Is there still passion and desire to please him on the other side? Why are you obeying the Lord? Are you obeying him out of fear? Or are you obeying, obeying him because there's also this enthusiasm to do what blesses the Lord, that touches his heart, that lets him know how you feel about him? It's not like you're just trying to avoid hell, my friend. You actually want to make God happy too. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. Praise God for that. And the last thought about the bride, and I'll move on to the army, is the idea of the bride in this metaphor 
also gives us the idea of being chosen by the groom. See, it's a different picture when we just say that you're a child of God. See, all these illustrations give you different images to know how God sees you, you see God, see your purpose and meaning. But this in particular image, the groom chooses his bride. Isn't that beautiful? That's different than a child who's born into the family. In this picture, the groom has said, I see you, I desire to be your groom, and I commit myself to you forever. And that's how God has spoken over you and has chosen us to be his. He sees us, he loves us, he has selected us. He didn't just receive us, he came and pursued us and he said, I want you to be my bride. Isn't that beautiful? Would you just give a praise to the Lord about the, being the bride of Christ? Jesus even said it in John chapter 15, verse 16, he said, you did not choose me, I chose you. Amen. The army of God. Let's say the army of God. Say army of God. Army of God. I'd just like to give you scriptures to kind of help you see that we are referred to again as these illustrations. 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 4, we're talked, uh, Paul is preaching to Timothy and he says, you know, endure hardship like a good soldier. So we have language of soldier and warfare and all these types of illustrations to help us understand that we're in a battle and we are soldiers in that battle in the Lord's army. Ezekiel chapter 37, I want you to see this in particular passage because it talks about an army that God is bringing together. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ezekiel chapter 37. Are you getting anything out of this so far today? Good. Ezekiel 37. A little bit lengthy passage, but I think it'll give you a wonderful picture of the Lord's army. This is the way God viewed his children in the Old Testament Israel, and we have been brought in to that nation. We've been brought in to God's plan for the earth. Ezekiel chapter 37, 1 through 14. The Lord took me, talking about Ezekiel, the prophet, the Lord took me, he took hold of me, and I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. He led me all around those bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. Then he asked me, son of man, can these bones become living people again? I said, Sovereign Lord, I replied, you alone know the answer to that. He said to me, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. I love that. Here this army is scattered, this army is dried out, and the solution is start prophesying and speaking the living word of the Spirit to these bones. And look what happens when God's people begin to receive prophetic word, right? He says, I am going to put breath into you and make you live again. Those bones couldn't make themselves live, but the word of the Lord and the spirit in the word can make you live again. I will put flesh and muscle upon you and I will cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know I am the Lord. I spoke this message just as he told me and suddenly as I spoke, there was a rattling noise across the valley floor. Can you picture that? This valley and these bones start shaking like. Maybe that's what happens on Sunday mornings in the body of Christ and the army of God. If there's some dry bone parts of the army, maybe that rattling begins to happen as the word begins to be preached. There was a rattling noise in the valley and the bones of each body came together and attached themselves as a complete skeleton. What a scene. 
You start seeing a leg bone start shooting across the valley to go find the hip. You start seeing arms coming together. You start seeing hands like looking to go like find the body that it's like going to. I mean, that's not as creepy as like, that's creepier. But I also love this picture because these bones began to find connection points and come together. And that's what Maria was talking about last week. The body of Christ beginning to come together in partnership to form this body. Well, this body that's being formed is also a part of an army. Somebody say amen. amen. It's not just a body to stand there. It's a body to march to the earth and bring the kingdom of God to this generation. They began to attach themselves into a skeleton. Then as I watched, muscles and flesh formed over the bones. The skin formed over to cover the bodies, but they still had no breath in them. Then he said to me, speak another prophetic message to the winds. Son of man, speak a prophetic message and say, this is what the Lord, the sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath, from the four winds. Breathe into these dead bodies so that they may live again. So I spoke the message as he commanded me, and breath came into their bodies. And they all came to life and stood to their feet a great army. A great army. And that's who we are. We are the army of God. We are all these parts coming together. And that valley stood up, and inside of that valley was a great army. Are we supposed to be militant then, Pastor Kevin? Being an army and that metaphor of being an army, does that mean we're supposed to be violent? No. Not in the natural sense, but in the spirit. Are you hearing me? This is where people get it wrong. You can go through church history and they were like, yes, we're the army of God and we did some pretty terrible things throughout church history with that philosophy that with swords and clubs or somehow with weapons fleshly weapons, we would somehow force the earth into the kingdom of God. That is not the plan of the Lord. Somebody say amen. amen. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but we are fighting against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in heavenly places. You are an army, you have weapons, and you've been charged to push back the army of darkness and the kingdom of darkness. You can get excited about that. That's okay. Yeah. But see, this metaphor is so interesting because it helps us see some other areas about ourselves and our responsibility. I believe that an army symbolizes a couple things. You can write these things in your notes. I believe it symbolizes a collective group of us coming together. Because an army is not made up of just one soldier. We need one another. That's a good place to say amen. One soldier does not make an army. It is all of us working together. We are many soldiers working together. The idea of an army also gives you a picture of being disciplined. You don't hear that too much in the body of Christ being preached anymore, but we are meant to be disciplined. Disciplined in our emotions. Disciplined in our daily routines. Disciplined about what we let in. Disciplined about what we say, because we represent the army, not just ourselves. Are you hearing me, church? Disciplined, trained. Sometimes we just think church nowadays is just coming into a service. Do we like the worship? Do we like the speaking? Do we like the service? That is such the icing of stuff. You are being brought into an army, which also means there is some boot camp, there is some training, there is some discipline. Come on now, that needs to happen. There's some strong speaking that needs to happen to you because we're a little soft and we need to grow up in some things. You don't go to boot camp in the, in the normal army and they're like, oh my, you're so cute. And you know, oh good job for just showing up. You get a ribbon. 
They're like, drop it, give me 20! And they're meant to push more out of you than you know is in there. Make you stronger, not just keep you the same. You're meant to be powerful. As an army, we're meant to be missional, driven by mission, not just what we feel like. I got a good response on that. I don't ask you, are you gonna, are you gonna show up for training today? I don't know if I feel like it. Get back into boot camp, get back into training. Not that that's the way I'm gonna start preaching. But you know what I'm saying? It's not whether or not you feel like going today. It's not whether you feel like going to battle today. It's not where you feel. You are a soldier in the army of the Lord. And we are trained. We are disciplined. Amen. But we're also powerful, missional, tactical as well. Do you know God's army can have some tact as well? You don't just go in and start messing up the whole town. Like there are strategic ways how to reach your school for Jesus. There are strategic ways how to bring the gospel into your business practices. Strategic ways how to preach and proclaim the message of the Lord and help people find Jesus. And not all one way fits all. It's about being determined, missional, and saying, yes, we're going to bring the gospel, but let's figure out the way to do it in this life or in this situation. Amen. Being a part of an army is also sacrificial. There is sacrifice that comes in being a part of any army and the army of the Lord. Everyone is doing their role in an army. There's delegated authorities in an army. So we have to learn how to listen to the different authorities that God does delegate into his army. It's the way it's gonna work. It's not gonna work if all the soldiers are trying to make all the decisions and all the calls. There is a coming together as an army and God delegating authority in certain places in the church and saying, yes, we're gonna go with that to win the battles and the victories, amen. Also, when you see yourself as a part of an army, you realize that battles are to be expected. We're not surprised by battles. Somebody say amen to that, please. Sometimes we act like you go through life and if you love Jesus, you're never supposed to see a battle. You don't realize you're a part of the army of the Lord. If I'm doing everything right with Jesus and I should never see a battle, you don't realize you're a part of a war and you wage a good warfare. See, all these illustrations are great. You're a child of God, you're a city on a hill, you're a lampstand, you're a bride, but you're also a soldier and a warrior. And this helps us see how life is gonna be and what to do in those situations. And not every battle means you've done something wrong. Sometimes battles mean you're doing something right. And the enemy's trying to push back on you and you just need to keep advancing in the way that God has determined for you to go. Amen. We also realize that battles win overall warfares. That there's many battles, not just one. Sometimes you think, well, I thought I fought a battle last year. I thought I won the battle. This is an overall warfare that we will continue to wage until the king comes and sets up the kingdom. Are you understanding that? So to say I fought a battle last year doesn't exempt you from fighting another battle. But you're designed to do this. You're trained to do this. You're empowered to do this. And you have weapons. Somebody say weapons. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses four through six, the Bible talks about the weapons of our warfare they are not fleshly weapons. They are not carnal weapons, but they are mighty through God. Some of those weapons, write them down. You have a weapon of prayer. 
That's a weapon. Question to the soldier is, have you been using your weapon? You may be in a battle, but when's the last time you pulled out the weapon of prayer? You're a soldier. You've been issued a prayer weapon. The word of God is a weapon. And you can see this, that if I begin to learn how to use my weapons and when to use my weapons, I'll begin to see more victories in these battles. Tongues. Somebody say tongues. Speaking in languages that the Holy Spirit utters through you, that's a weapon. Faith is a weapon. God grows your faith through the word, but he also can impart gifts of faith. And faith, I've seen people standing in hospital situations that are impossible, but there's such a peace on them. There's such an assurance about what God has spoken. That's a weapon through that battle. Or maybe you're going through a tough financial situation, and yet there's an anchor in your soul. There's a faith that cannot be moved. That's a weapon during that financial battle. The gifts of the Spirit are weapons. Your friendships with one another are weapons. We bear one another's burdens. We help each other fight battles. Amen. You don't just fight your own. You can fight with others for their assignments or for what's coming against them. We are soldiers together. Worship is a weapon. Fasting is a weapon. And sharing your testimony is a weapon. And there's more weapons. But I just want you to see you've been given weapons. Here's the thing. If we fail to see these illustrations, let's just say you just focused on being the loved bride. If we're not careful and all your theology is just being the loved bride, you can begin to have a little bit of self-focused Christianity. He loves me. He's committed to me. I'm beautiful to the Lord. <laughs> it's all about me. He's, you know, I just love hearing how much I'm loved. And that's fine. But there's other metaphors, my friend. You're not just the bride that's loved. You're also the army of the Lord which means you have a mission. You have a job to do. You have to be disciplined. You have to fight back. You have to get involved. And so all of these images are meant to keep us balanced, to help us paint the picture of who we are as the church. I would encourage you to go back and listen to these series, this series. Go back and look at other metaphors and understand that God, the church is so beautiful, there wasn't just one illustration that could give you the whole picture. But all of these illustrations together help you see who you are, how he sees you, and what we're to be doing. And so my prayer today is that you would feel loved and God's commitment towards you as his bride, but also that you would feel confident and missional about who you are as the body of Christ and to be activated, to start pushing back on the enemy, start realizing you have weapons. Have you been using those weapons? Have you been trained in those warfares and those weapons? Are you, and if not, come to our discipleship classes. We're beginning another set of equips classes on Wednesday nights. Get involved in Wednesday night prayer and start learning how to pray. Get involved in different discipleship programs around the church, small groups that can help you learn and grow and sharpen your skills, fighting for things together in a, in a body, of, in a unit of soldiers so many things, but be activated today, church. Let me close in a word of prayer. Would you go ahead and stand up as we close today? Give God praise for his word, would you? Amen. God, give him a good praise. You are the bride. You are the army of God. You are the temple of God. You are the body of Christ. You are the children of God. You are the light to the world, the city on a hill. Look how God sees you. Look what he's created through the blood of Jesus. Somebody get excited one more time about that? Jesus, look what you created. Look what we're a part of. I love you. I love your church. I'm excited to be a part of what God is doing in the earth.
God, I thank you for understanding. You said with all you're getting, get understanding. And Lord, I pray today that you help us in this whole series, help us to see what you created, to love what you love, and to walk in a way that you've created and permitted and empowered us to walk in. I give you thanks in Jesus' name. If you've not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, I wanna to give you an opportunity to do so. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and, call, and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us needs a Savior. The wages of our sin is death, separation from God, even hell. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. The Bible goes on to say that all who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so today we wanna to give you an opportunity to call on the name of the Lord Jesus and to save you, forgive you, wash you, and bring you into his family, which is also into all these pictures we've been talking about. Make you his bride, bring you into his army, make you his temple, make you his child, all those things. And so if you would please bow your heads and close your eyes for the next 30 seconds. Today, if you would say, Pastor Kevin, I've never given my heart to Jesus. I don't remember a time that I prayed a prayer to ask Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. If that's you, when I count to three, just slip your hand up right where you are and we'll pray with you right there at your seat. You might say, I used to have a relationship with the Lord, but I've walked away and it's been a long time and I would like to have a fresh start. If that's you today, when I count to three, simply raise your hand and we'll pray a prayer together right at your seat and we'll get you started once again. Would you pray with me? Let me count to three. If you need to give your heart to Jesus or recommit your heart to Jesus on three, raise your hand. Ready? One, two, three. If that's you, would you put your hand up today? There's a hand in the middle. Wonderful. Anyone else? I am not where I should be with the Lord and I want to get right. Put your hand up. There's a hand in the back too. Great. Three in the front. Wonderful. Anyone else? right. Just pop your hand up where you are. Four. Thank you. Yep, I see it. Four. Awesome. Five. I see your hand there, buddy. Five. Let's pray together. I may not have seen your hand. The Lord saw your hand. But I, with those five and anyone else even watching online, would you pray this prayer with me, church? All of them praying together. Dear God, I thank you that you see me just as I am. I realize that I've sinned and I've walked away from you. I receive Jesus Christ today as my Lord and Savior. I believe that he died for me and he rose again. Please forgive me of my sin. Wash me, cleanse me, make me new. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Take every part of me now. Be my God. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you celebrate those? Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by the ministry of Calvary Orlando. We invite you to join us in person at Calvary Orlando for one of our Sunday morning worship experiences each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. To find out more about Calvary, please visit our website at calvaryorlando.org. Here you can find our latest events and ministry opportunities. Thanks for listening and God bless.